I am so glad to be here with you today, to be behind the pulpit. It's been one of those weeks, a lot of busyness, opposition you might call some of it, crises, uh, even when trying to study my sermon text, many, many distractions throughout the course of the week, including like alarms going off, car alarms going off. Then my voice, Uh, so this morning I have no handout, no PowerPoint, but I'm here. (laughs) I'm grateful to be so. When you run across weeks like this, you sometimes wonder, you know, uh, Lord, what what do you want me to preach this week? And then you look at the text and you see what it is and you think, well, maybe, just maybe someone doesn't want us to hear about God's present wrath being demonstrated toward all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so because of my own uh, feelings of human inadequacy this morning, I would ask you to go with me to the Lord in prayer, ask him for grace and strength to understand his word, to pay close attention, and for him to use it in our lives. So let's pray together. Lord, I'm thankful for this privilege of standing in this pulpit and proclaiming your word. Lord, I know that the topic of our conversation today, or of this discourse, is not one that is at all popular. It's not popular in our culture, and we don't even really like to consider it much. But it is part of your holy inerrant word, and it reveals to us who you are. And so, Lord, help us to understand it clearly, and help us to submit to it, knowing that you're a good God, you are slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love, and you are willing to forgive. Thank you so much for your love that was demonstrated in the gift of your only begotten Son. Thank you. You loved us so much. You gave your Son to the point of death so that we would be delivered from your wrath. I pray, Lord, that we would remember the gospel as we go through this section And I pray that we might be able to leave here today rejoicing in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 1, and my goal would be to get through verses 18 through 32, right before my voice gives way, uh, and then uh, we'll just rejoice in what God has done. After the introduction to the letter of Romans, uh, Paul expresses his main theological idea from Romans 1.18, the whole way through the end of Romans 11. Paul is going to, in these chapters, uh, fully describe the gospel that he preaches, uh, giving special attention to the nature of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the history of the gospel. The nature of the gospel is revealed in Romans 1.18 through the end of chapter 4. It's a 
gospel that reveals God's righteousness. This is, of course, something he's already introduced in the uh, verses 16 and 17, the thesis of the letter. But he will expand upon that more. If you look at the first word of verse 18, you can see that Paul is going to expound more fully on one point that he has just made. You see the word for there is a marker to let us know he's going to give us fuller explanation of what he said in verses 16 and 17. And there we learned that the gospel is God's saving power for everyone who believes because in it God's righteousness or justice is revealed. Since God's righteousness involves his fairness and impartiality then, it will be essential for Paul to show that God's wrath toward the unrighteousness of human beings is fair. Okay, so as we look at verses 18 through 32, this is where Paul will begin. He will explain why salvation through the gospel is necessary for human beings. It is because God's wrath is being revealed against all forms of human sinfulness in our world. In other words, we desperately need salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the picture that Paul gives here is not flattering. Uh, if you're studying Romans, you get to Romans 1.18, you, you kind of get to um, a turn, right, in the road where the picture is going to be pretty dark. Paul will go on to describe the unrighteousness and ungodliness of all people. I think that he starts in 118 through 32 by talking about the ungodliness of Gentile people. Before he transitions to talk about the surprising ungodliness and unrighteousness of the Jewish people, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 8. And then after having considered both groups of people, Jew and Gentile, in Romans 3, 9 through 20, he summarizes the fallen condition of all human beings. Every person, man, woman, and child. I remember going into a truck stop hotel when I worked for Allied Van Lines during the summer. I went into the room, never forget this, I went into the room and the first thing I did was I flipped on the light switch. And when I flipped on the light switch in this truck stop hotel, things scattered. I don't even know what all of the things were. There were things squirming and, you know, all kinds of different motions and movements. Have you ever had an experience like that? Well, what I think Paul is doing in Romans 1, 18 through 3.20 is he's turning the light switch on to reveal the fallen human condition of all men and women outside of Jesus Christ. Although not, not specifically addressed in 1, 18 through 32 as Gentiles, I think it becomes clear later that Paul's intention is to consider the sin, sinful Gentile people in verses 18 through 32 and God's wrath against them. 
I think this passage is most relevant for humans who don't have any knowledge of God's written revelation found in the Scripture. Okay, so um, here we're going to talk about God revealing himself to humanity through other means other than Scripture. Okay, so this is most relevant to people who don't know the Scripture, haven't heard it before. One might wonder if these kinds of people will be held accountable for their sin. I mean, they don't have Scripture. Will they be held accountable? Paul's indictment in this passage, however, makes it clear that they face God's wrath because of their sin. Now, there's a sense as well that Romans 1 portrays the story of human history. This is what the human race did in the face of God. And so having said all this, I want to dig into the passage. Paul's argument in chapter 1 will move from God's unceasing wrath against sin, verses 18 through 20, to humanity's certain culpability, verses 21 through 32. So we begin with God's wrath. In verse 18, we see the reality of God's unceasing wrath against sin. Look at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I think verse 18 acts as a header for the chapter. And to properly understand it, there are a few important points you have to make about verse 18 before you go anywhere else in the text. First, we need to consider what the wrath of God is or what it involves. Okay, now, as we get into this topic, we get into a topic that we don't normally like to dwell on. I have heard a few believers say, I I just love talking about the wrath of God. I just think they're odd or strange. Okay, we don't normally like to dwell on this. Perhaps uh, we even wish this wasn't in the book of Romans. This is probably not your favorite part of Romans. Okay, again, I say probably. Nor should it be our favorite part of Romans. The notion of God punishing people is profoundly offensive in our world today and in our culture. Yet Paul is going to take a lot of time to talk about this. He's going to be on this topic for some time. He's not going to relent until he fully establishes this in the theology of the Romans. In our own day, we tend to shy away from talking about God's righteous and burning wrath against sinners. I think there could be a few reasons for that. It may be just because of the, we know it's just culturally unacceptable. Or I think it might also be because we like to think about God only in certain terms. We like to think about God in ways that are loving and kind and gracious. Thinking about God burning in anger against sinners is not how we like to think about him. But I ask you a very important question, brothers and sisters, before we dig too deep into this text. And the question is, how much do you really want to know God? Do you want to know God as he really is? I mean, how he says he is? 
I mean, the question you need to consider is who or what is going to be your authority, right? Will it be your own perspectives, your own thoughts, your own ideas about who God is, or will it be how God has described himself in his own inerrant word? And it's been my prayer all week that you and I would be willing to submit ourselves today to him. And gladly embrace what he says about himself in his word, regardless of what our culture says. And regardless of what your I perceived, uh, preconceived picture of him would be. Okay, so we look at verse 18 again. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is God's settled and perfectly righteous antagonism toward evil. Okay, this is a great way to summarize the wrath of God. It comes from John Stott. I really like it. I'll say it again. The wrath of God is God's settled and perfectly righteous antagonism toward evil. Now, when we think of the wrath of God, we might naturally think of human anger, but human anger is most often wrong. Okay? When we talk about the wrath of God, it does not mean that God loses his temper or that he flies into a rage. It does not mean that God is vindictive or spiteful. That's human anger. Nothing arouses God in his wrath except evil and wickedness. And you can rest assured that evil always arouses God's wrath. I agree with one man who summarized this part of the text this way. He says, God is a righteous God whose wrath against humanity is fair and equitable. So when you think of the wrath of God, and we're answering the question, what is it? It's God's settled and perfectly righteous antagonism toward evil. But I want to point out one other thing in the text in verse 18 to you. Notice that this wrath is revealed. Verse 18, it is revealed. And that's bad news for human beings. While it is easy to think of the wrath of God as being something that is future and or eternal, and there are a whole host of passages that talk about God's wrath in that way. There is a wrath, God's punishment against sin, that is certain, that's coming, that's future, and that's even eternal in God's judgment regarding sin. In this passage, Paul explains that this wrath is something that is being manifested from heaven against sin. As the wrath of God is already being revealed from heaven. And you can rest assured of this, that God is as angry with sin today as he was during and before the flood. Or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, but, but this begs the question how... How has God been revealing his wrath against sin? And I think that's where the rest of the passage from verses 21 through 32 goes. Okay, so by the end, we're going to answer this question. And I'll give you a hint here at this part of the sermon. It has to do with God handing people over to their own sinfulness. Okay, but I I do want you to know at the beginning here that God is 
presently demonstrating wrath, his wrath against all forms of human sinfulness. We might also bring to mind the object of his wrath. The text says it very clearly. It's all unrighteousness and ungodliness of people who suppress the truth. That is, nothing gets past God's. God, God's wrath comes down on all forms of unrighteousness and ungodliness, and it applies to every human being who is able to suppress his truth by his or her unrighteousness. And so the main idea, I think, of verse 18 is Paul's portrayal of the unceasing wrath of God that is revealed against all human sinfulness. Up to that point, Paul adds more clarity in verses 19 and 20. And he explains that it is entirely just for God to treat human beings this way. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So... They are without excuse. Here Paul develops more about the idea of how people have suppressed his truth. People perceive who God is, and they do so because of God's initiation. People know of God's existence and power through creation. We read Psalm 19, which reminds us of God's power and his being and creation. All cognitive people have some access or have access to some degree of a knowledge of God. This is the value of general revelation in creation. Creation reveals to every cognitive human that God exists and that, and, and makes all men and women accountable before Him. Okay, so as I'm looking at verses 19 and 20, that's one of the big ideas we have to come away with that God has revealed through creation enough for people to know him. However, the way Paul goes in the text after that is to say, although that is true, they, that is men and women, do not honor God or give him thanksgiving. Now, we tend to come to Romans 1 to feel bad for people, right? And there is a sense in which that's appropriate. I mean, when we consider the wrath of God we're going to look at in this passage. We come to this passage and we don't want to talk about it with others because we're, we feel bad for our neighbor or our friend or our family member and what this text says about God judging them. Um, however, um, this text makes it clear that it is God who is wronged. He is good and benevolent God who is, in a sense, metaphorically slapped in the face and discarded by humanity in the passage. John Piper asked this question. I thought it was a good one. He said, why is it that people feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is discarded, disbelieved, dishonored and thus belittled by millions and millions of people in this world. 
I think that's a good question. In this passage, verses 19 and 20, it's really clear. God has made himself known to every cognitive human being through creation. And yet, their response is not to honor him or to give him genuine thanksgiving at all. Oh, the results of this become for humans that they're foolish in their way of thinking. They, their whole inward selves become dark. And we'll see more of that later in the passage. But this text means that God is unceasing and that he is just in his wrath against sinners so that every human being now is excuseless. There's no excuse that human beings will be able to give before God. In the day of judgment. But that but but what does it really look like for these people to hold down or suppress the truth? And what or how will God's wrath is God's wrath demonstrated against them? That's where we go in verses 21 through 32. And I want to point out one thing to you in the passage here that, that really helped me to kind of see what's going on, and then we'll work through the three sections here. In verses 21 through 32, Paul follows the same general pattern three times. Okay, and if you know this text, when I talk about this, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's that's what's going on. Okay, and you can see this pattern with the word exchange. Okay, the pattern is this. In each one of these three parts of the text, Humanity makes an exchange. And as a result of that exchange, God issues a judgment. In verse 21, they exchange a knowledge of God. In verse 25, they exchange the truth of God. And in verse 28, they exchange a knowledge of God again. And in each one of these passages, we not only have an exchange being made by humanity, but they experience God's judgment. All right, and so this is how I outline the passage. I, you know, my outline is exchange one, exchange two, exchange three. Exchange one goes from verses 21 through 24. Exchange two, 25 through 27. Exchange three, 28 through 32. All right, so I want to look at these with you. We start with the first exchange verses 21 through 23. Uh, Let me read those verses for you. Uh, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here, the depraved human mind uh, has the ability to rationalize things. In this passage, people replace their knowledge of God that they can gain through creation, and they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, who is always blessed, for the glory of things they make, of images and idols. And basically what's revealed in this passage is the exchange that humanity makes 
is they worship what they want. They pervert worship. They worship themselves or they replace God with stones or wood or something like that and then offer up worship to him. Actually, the text says that they give glory to man and then to animals and then birds and creeping things, which I noticed I believe is a digression of sorts in the text toward the beings that they're willing to ascribe honor or worship to. Things get weaker and weaker, smaller and smaller, from man the whole way down to creeping things. Now this sort of idolatry still happens in parts of our world today where people will worship these things. However, in our culture, there uh, may not appear to be direct parallels, but there are. I like how Douglas Moo said this. He said, Paul's words... Uh, have as much relevance for people who have made money or sex or fame their gods as for those who've carved idols out of wood or stone. Okay, so as I'm looking at the text, you have this exchange. Uh, they know enough of God they should worship him, but instead they start worshiping, uh, as the text says here, um, man and animals, birds and creeping things. The result is found in verse 24. Look there. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Okay, how does God respond here? Now, I think the word therefore is important in the text. So, humanity does not worship God, reserve a place to worship him. Therefore, in response to that, God does something. We have attempted to dethrone God, and in response, God, the text says, gives us up. He hands humans over. And three times in the text, you will see this phrase, God giving them up, giving them up. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. That's another reason why I think there are three sections here of this passage. God giving them up, giving them up, giving them up. Now, the words giving up are fundamentally a judicial term. Paul hands them over to punishment like a judge would. But the ironic thing about the punishment here, it's exactly what humanity was craving for. They get what they want. But what does God handing them over or giving them up really mean? I, I think it, it means that God does not help humanity restrain their flesh at all when he responds in this way. God allows their flesh to dominate them. They have no chance because they're controlled by their own flesh. To better understand this, I think we have to understand a little bit more about the restricting or the restraining hand of God. It is a grace of God to men and women that he would restrain them and cultures from manifesting the worst forms of their debauchery. But in this text, Paul uh, decides, or God decides, to remove this in response to human sinfulness. And what do you suppose will happen? What happens when God ceases to restrict humans? What happens when the grip of God is released from man? What happens when the one squirming in the restraining hand of God 
is finally released. And I think the answer to that is what happens when anything that is suspended is finally released. It falls into greater and greater and greater debauchery and depravity. The result is that mankind is plunged into utter hopelessness and debauchery. That leads to a second exchange, verses 25 through 27. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Look at verse 25. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. That's the exchange that they make. The results come in the next two verses. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Okay, so they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that results in God giving humanity over to unnatural impurities and dishonorable passions. Now there's a natural type of impurity. It's still impure and wrong. It's sexual immorality. But there's also an unnatural way to engage in immorality, and that is homosexuality and lesbianism. Now, if talking about God's wrath is unpopular in our world today, then talking about homosexuality will downright get you in trouble. Unless everything you say is positive and affirming. But we must hold forth scripture. It must be our guide. We should do so in love and grace. But we need to hold scripture. And so we work through this text. This unnatural perversity involves both men and women in the text. It starts with the perversity of women abandoning the natural use of men for other women. The description of the male's perversity is lengthened in the text. They do three things. They forsake sexual relationships with women. They then burn in their lust toward other men and finally engage in shameful acts with other men. That is, their activity digresses until they consummate their sin in a perverse way that goes against the pattern of God. And the same sex lust results in shameless acts, the text says, and then it ends with this Very intriguing phrase, which I'm still really wrestling through in full transparency. It ends with them receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Okay, that that might be a final way of talking about their lust and homosexuality itself. Or it could speak of physical and moral consequences of the sin of homosexuality. And I think it might be that last one. Paul has something in mind here that affects men and women. The text says, in themselves, they experience the consequences, the due penalty of their error. As we come through the text, you come to this sin of homosexuality, and perhaps you have wondered in your own heart, why would God choose this one sin? I've heard a lot of preaching on this. I'm sure you have as well. 
I think it's a fairly simple answer that it is a sin that uh, demonstrates humanity's lack of willingness to respond to God in the way things should be. It's the best illustration of something that is unnatural. It's taking something that God has given, sex between a, a man and a woman, it's perverting it and replacing it with our own creation. Um, yet this p- passage clearly condemns homosexuality as a result of the perverse digression of the human heart that is not being restrained by God. Now, as we talk about this uh, at Colonial, I think it would be very important for us to hold this, to have this view of homosexuality, that it is wrong, sinful, it's not the way God intended it, and it's an example of something that cuts across God's intention design for men and women. Okay, But I do want to encourage us to hold these views in grace and love. Understanding this, and uh, many times when I hear people kind of, especially believers, strongly pontificate against this sin, um, I think it's, again, that's what the scriptures are saying, but I think we can talk about it with love and grace, recognizing that many brothers and sisters in Christ have Some of them have children who are engaging in this sort of sin and thus under the wrath of God because of their sinfulness. Some of them have friends. And while it is important to hold these views of who God is, we should also keep in mind that the Scriptures clearly demonstrate that people can be delivered from this. Paul's third passage where he ever mentioned homosexuality is 1 Corinthians 6. And I just would encourage you to turn there for a second. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That stands. Verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's no sin from which Jesus Christ can't save. As we hold these views, let's let's keep in mind that God through Christ can save us as sinners from any of our sins and sinfulness. May that First Corinthians text as well be encouraging to some of my brothers and sisters in Christ who still might feel temptations, same-sex temptations, as a follower of his. Might it encourage you that you've been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Let's go back to Romans 1 and we'll finish out. There are these three exchanges in the text. The third one occurs in verses 28 through 32. It says in verse 28, the exchange is, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Here I think we have a shortened form of our pattern. Here, these humans, humans deteriorate to the place where they do not even like to keep any room for God in their mind. They do not like to think about him at all, and so they reason him out of existence in their mind. Does this sound like fallen culture? There are three results of this last exchange where they just refuse to even acknowledge who God is. These three results are middle verse 28 through 32. First, they're given over to a disqualified mind. Look at the middle of verse 28. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A debased mind is a twisted mind. It is a mind in which the distinctives between right and wrong are confused or are lost entirely. Since they see God as unfit, they get... An unfit mind. I think we see this same sort of disqualified thinking in our world today. A people like this will be like the fool who calls evil good and good evil. And then we're sitting there listening with our Bibles open saying, what in the world? That's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. A people like this will soon struggle to define and understand basic things regarding sexuality like the definition of what is a woman? What is a man? They will see a problem like illegitimate births among young people and offer their own solutions, which do not in any way follow Scripture. These solutions show unfit minds. They replace God because he is unfit and their minds become more and more unfit. But then another consequence, a result of this, is they manifest a whole host of vices in verses 29 through 32. Okay, so I want to read these verses with you as well. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. In these verses, Paul lists 21 other ways that their depraved hearts take them. They become full of these kind of things as well when they reject God. And he gives them over to a disqualified mind. We don't have the time to look at all 21 in detail. And I don't know that the point is to see every form just to know that they're filled with these things. They're full of these sort of things when they replace God 
and go their own way, go the way their heart tells them to go. But the final result is in verse 32, where it says, Though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Finally, in this part of verse 32, we can see that they're so perverse that they not only commit their original sins as a result of some singular momentary passion, overwhelming passion that they experience, but they're doing so now out of a settled conviction. John Murray, the old Presbyterian, said it this way. He says, we are not only bent on damning ourselves but we congratulate others in the doing of those things that we know have their issue in damnation. Not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in doing those things. It becomes so bad for men and women like this that their minds are no longer capable of approving what is right. Their consciences no longer condemn them for their sin and they're very comfortable and settled in their sin. And a people like this won't be content if a culture tolerates their sinful lifestyle. They will be proud of it and will demand eventually that everyone celebrate it with them. This is a mark of human depravity. It's a mark of God's judgment upon this world. So we've left one question unanswered here this morning. How is God's wrath presently being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness? The answer clearly stated, verses 21 through 32, the answer is all around us, God is handing people over to their own lusts and passions. And as people and cultures spiral downward, it's the sure sign of God's condemning and present wrath against sin. To this I say, colonial, may God help us and may we Christians accept our God the way that he is and worship him in his holiness and righteousness. And may God, through the Spirit, enable us to live lives that conform to the grace of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we always thank you for your word. We thank you at the end of every sermon for it. Today we've considered a challenging passage It's challenging, at least for two reasons for us, God, as we humbly come before you. It's challenging because it's not what our culture says is right or true. In this cultural moment, in our day and age, to consider your holy, righteous anger toward and against all human sinfulness, and to consider things like how men and women pervert pervert things like sexuality 
is, is not what our culture would embrace. But Lord, this is also likely true for some of my brothers or sisters here because of their own preconceived idea of who you are and what you should be. I know, Father, through conversations I've had with some believers here that there are some people who would say, I just don't know if I can believe in a God who demonstrates wrath like this. Lord, I pray that we'd be willing to submit to what the Scriptures say. And as we consider your wrath against sin, might we consider the seriousness with which you had in sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. You knew your wrath must be appeased. And you loved us so much that you sent your son to bear the weight of it all for us. Lord, may we believe in your wrath against human sinfulness. And would the cross remind us of that serious, serious subject? Lord, as we consider all of these things, we are so thankful for the gospel of Christ that delivers us from your judgment. We pray that we would be encouraged today to look to the cross, look to the gospel for assurance and hope in this moment as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.